John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59. Verses 22 through 27. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, save the one whereinto his disciples entered, and that Jesus was not with his disciples into that boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping, and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves, and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Burkett Notes Our Savior, having wrought the foregoing miracle, feeding five thousand with five loaves, the people followed him in troops from place to place. Christ, who knew their hearts, tells them plainly what was their end. They followed him indeed, but not for any spiritual excellences they saw in him, or soul advantages they expected from him, but for bread, only to have their bellies fed with the loaves, not their souls satisfied with the bread of life. Oh, how seldom is Christ sought for his own sake! How natural it is for men to seek Christ for sinister ends and by respects! But to seek him only for outward advantage is the basest of by-ends, and that which the soul of Christ exceedingly abhors. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. This prohibition must not be understood absolutely, but comparatively, not as if Christ intended to take them off from their lawful labors and the business of their callings, but his meaning is, labor not in the first and chief place for earthly things, which are all perishing, but for bread for your souls to live eternally by, even for the food of my heavenly doctrine, which will make them that feed upon it immortal. And this the Son of Man stands ready to give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. That is, by a special commission and authority, hath empowered him to dispense all spiritual blessings to them that want and crave them. Learn hence, one, that all the things of this life are perishing and fading. The best of outward comforts and enjoyments are meat that perisheth. Two, that it's the greatest of follies to labor intensely and inordinately for, and to set ourselves with all our might and strength to pursue and follow after perishing things. Three, that Christ's holy doctrine, his heavenly grace, is food that never perisheth, nor diminisheth, how many soever partake of it, but make all that partake thereof to be partakers of eternal life therewith. Four, that Jesus Christ is authorized, sealed, and commissioned by his Father to give eternal life to such as industriously labor after him and will not be satisfied without him. Him hath God the Father sealed, that is, Jesus Christ was sealed to the office of the Mediator by God the Father. Christ was sealed at his baptism, sealed by his doctrine, sealed by his miracles, sealed by his resurrection, sealed by his unction of supereminent and unparalleled sanctification. Lord, where will the rejecters of Christ then appear at that great day, who have despised the authority of him whom the Father commissioned to give eternal life to whomsoever he pleaseth? Verses 28 and 29 then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? 
Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. Burkett notes, Here the Jews, who were strict observers of the ceremonial law of Moses, and rested thereupon for salvation, inquire of our Savior what they should do that they might please God. Christ directs them to the great duty of believing on himself, to own and acknowledge him to be the true Messiah, and as such to rely on him alone for salvation. This is the work of God, that ye believe, etc. Learn hence that for a penitent, humbled sinner to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is a work highly pleasing and acceptable unto God. Christ calls faith the work of God upon a threefold account. It's the work of his efficiency and operation. Tis the work of his commanding, and tis the work of his approbation and acceptation. A work that God is highly pleased with and greatly delighted in. This is the work of God. Verses 30 and 31. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Burkett notes, Here the Jews tell our Savior that before they will believe in him, they must see some sign from him to confirm his doctrine and prove him to be the Messiah. They acknowledge Christ had wrought a great miracle in feeding five thousand persons with five barley loaves, but Moses fed their fathers in the wilderness, who were no less than six hundred thousand persons, with excellent manna from heaven, and this for forty years together. From whence they would seem to conclude that they had more reason to believe Moses than Christ, not considering that Moses was but an instrument to obtain by prayer the manna at the hands of God, but Christ was an agent, and that by a creating power inherent in himself, he multiplied the five loaves to the feeding of five thousand. Note here, from the Jews requiring a sign before they would believe, that he who publishes a new doctrine to the world ought to confirm his mission by some miraculous operation. Two, that God honored Moses, his messenger, very much, and Christ, his minister, much more, in that both of them wrought great and special miracles for the confirmation of their mission. Three, that the Jews, not believing Christ to be the true Messiah, upon so many attestations, and after his divine mission was confirmed by such miraculous operations, rendered their infidelity inexcusable and their obstinacy invincible. Verses 32 and 33. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. Briquette notes, Upon the Jews mentioning manna to our blessed Savior, he takes occasion to make a comparison betwixt himself, the bread of life, and manna, the bread of Moses and that in three particulars. One, it was not Moses that gave the Israelites that manna, it was God at the prayer of Moses, but it was God that now offered them the bread of life, were they willing to accept it. Two, the manna was not given from heaven, that is, from the celestial heaven, but only from the air and clouds, which frequently in the scripture is called heaven. But Christ, the bread of life, was given and sent by the Father from the highest heaven, even the heaven of glory. Three, manna was not true spiritual food effectively and of itself, but bodily food only. But Christ is real and spiritual bread, which gives life 
the lost and dead men, which manna did not, could not do. And whereas manna was particular to Israel alone, Christ gives life to all sorts of persons, Gentiles as well as Jews. The bread of God giveth life unto the world. Learn hence that as Christ is the truth and substance of all types in the Old Testament, so particularly the manna was an illustrious type of Christ. In many things they agree, and in some they differ. They agree in the original. Manna came down from above, so did Christ. Manna was freely given, so was Jesus Christ the free gift of God. Manna was not fit to be eaten as it lay in the field. It must be ground in a mill, or beaten in a mortar, and baked in an oven, before it was fit for food. Christ was ground by his suffering, bruised on the cross, scorched in the fiery oven of his Father's wrath, that he might become a fit Savior for us. Again, as the manna was gathered by the Israelites, daily and equally, it rained down about their tents, and every man had his omer. Thus is Christ in the ministry of the word daily offered to a lost world, and all that believe in him shall share alike the benefits of the justification, sanctification, and glorification from him. But now the manna and Christ differ in this, and the true excels the type thus. There is a quickening, enlivening virtue, a life-giving and life-upholding power in Christ, the bread of life, which was never found in manna, the bread of Israel. And whereas manna only fed the body of an Israelite, and this only for a little time in the wilderness, Christ nourishes the soul, the soul of all believers, be they Jew or Gentile, bond or free, and this not for a time, but for eternity. The bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Verses 34 through 36. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me, and not believed. Burkett notes, Observe here how the carnal Jews, hearing of the bread which Christ had commended so highly, and conceiving of it carnally, decided they may partake of it constantly. Lord, evermore give us this bread. The commendation of spiritual things may move the affections and quicken the desires of natural persons. But if their desires be not spiritual and serious, diligent and laborious, constant and abiding, they are no evidence of the truth of grace. Observe, too, Christ discovers another excellent effect of this bread of life which he had been recommending, that such as feed of it shall never hunger more, that is, inordinately after the perishing satisfactions of this world, but shall find an all-sufficient fullness in him and complete refreshment from him for the preserving and perpetuating of their spiritual life. He that comes unto me shall never hunger. Observe 3. How justly Christ abrades the Jews for their obstinate infidelity. Ye have seen me, says our Savior, yet ye believe not. Ye have seen me in the flesh. You have heard my doctrine. You have seen my miracles. I have done amongst you those works which never any man did, to convince you that I am the Messiah. Yet you will not own me to be such, nor believe in me. O oh, the strength of infidelity and unbelief! The devil has as great an advantage upon men by making them strong in unbelief as God hath by making his people strong in faith. Verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that come to me 
I will in no wise cast out. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, having lamented the obstinate infidelity of the Jews in the foregoing verse, who, though they'd seen him, would not believe on him, he doth in this verse comfort himself with the assured expectation that there would be a number which should certainly and infallibly come unto him. All that the Father hath given me shall come unto me, etc. Here observe one, an account of the persons that shall come to Christ, all that the Father hath given him. There is a double gift of us to Christ, one, in God's eternal purpose and counsel, two, in our effectual vocation and calling, when our hearts are, by the Holy Spirit of God, persuaded and enabled to accept of Christ, as he has freely tendered us in the gospel. Observe, too, the gracious entertainment which Christ gives to those who come unto him. He will in no wise cast them out. Where the positive is included in the negative, I will not cast them out. That is, I will kindly receive and graciously entertain them. Learn hence, one, that both God the Father and Christ his Son are unfeignedly willing and cordially desirous of the salvation of lost sinners. That federal transaction which was betwixt the Father and the Son from everlasting about the salvation of lost sinners evidently declares this. Learn, too, that the merciful and compassionate Jesus will in no wise cast out or reject, but kindly entertain and receive every penitent sinner that doth believingly apply unto him for pardon of sin and eternal life. I will in no wise cast out. That is, I will not cast them out of my pity and compassion, out of my love and affection, out of my prayers and intercession, out of my care and protection. I will not cast them out of my covenant. I will never cast them out of my kingdom, for my nature inclines me, by promise binds me, and my office as mediator engages me to the contrary. Verses 38 through 40. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all that he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should rise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will rise him up at the last day. Burkett notes, In these words, our Savior gives us the confirmation of the foregoing promise, that he will in no wise cast out those that come unto him, by assuring us that it was the great end for which he came into the world. His Father sent him to do his will, and not his own, that is, not to do his own will without his Father's, but to do his own will and his Father's. For Christ, as God, hath a coordinate will with his Father's, and as a man will subordinate to the will of his Father. Now it is the will of both Father and Son that such as believe in him should be preserved from perishing and be raised up by Christ at the last day. Learn hence, 1. That the Lord Jesus Christ stands not only inclined by his own mercy and goodness to save repenting and believing sinners, but doth also stand obliged thereunto by virtue of a trust committed to him from the Father. Therefore, Christ mentions the will of him that sent him, as a reason for his fidelity in this matter. Learn, too, that the Father's will and good pleasure is the original source, the fountain and first spring, from whence the salvation of believers doth proceed and flow. It is the Father's will that sent me, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life.
Learn three, that such as are given to Christ by the Father and put as his trust into his keeping, he looks upon them as his charge and stands engaged for the preservation of them. This is my Father's will, that all which he hath given me I should lose nothing. Yet hath the Father so committed the care of believers to his Son as that he keeps them still in his own hand. John 10, 21 and 28. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Learn for, from those words, I will raise him up at the last day, that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly, essentially, and really God. That person who can by his own almighty power raise the dead must certainly be God. And this power Christ had. He raised others from the dead, and his own dead body from the grave also, by his own power. And therefore Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Doubtless that he spake these words and made these promises, knew his own power to perform them, and that power must be omnipotent, and the act of omnipotence doth prove him to be God. Tis true, the disciples raised the dead, who were yet not God. But with this difference, they raised the dead by Christ's power, but Christ raised others and himself by his own power. Verses 41 through 43. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. Burkett notes, Although Christ had in the foregoing verses plainly asserted himself to be the true bread that came down from heaven for the benefit of the world, yet the Jews, understanding his words carnally, are offended with him and murmur at him for pretending to come down from heaven when they knew him to be the son of Joseph and Mary. They understood nothing of his divine nature, nor of his miraculous conception by the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost, and therefore were highly offended at him. Thence learn that ignorance of Christ's divine nature was the ground and occasion of that contempt which was cast upon his person. Observe farther the proof which Christ gave of his divine nature in his knowing the hearts and thoughts of these murmuring Jews. Jesus said, Murmur not among yourselves. Christ knows and observes the most secret murmuring and repining that are found in the breasts of the children of men. And this, his knowledge, is an evidence and proof of his divinity, that he is truly and really God. Verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Burkett notes, in which words we have something necessarily implied and something positively expressed. The misery of man in his natural and unsanctified state is here implied. He is far distant from Christ and unable of himself to come unto him. By nature we are strangers, yea, enemies unto God, enemies to the holiness of his nature and the righteousness of his laws. And as a state of unregeneracy is a state of enmity, so consequently must it be a state of impotency. Without me, therefore, says Christ, ye can do nothing. John 15.5 That is, without interest in me, and influences of grace derived from me. Again, the truths we have expressed are these. 1. That all who come unto Christ are drawn unto him. 
too, that the drawing of sinful souls unto Jesus Christ is the special and peculiar work of God. This drawing is a powerful act, but not a compulsory act. God did not draw any against their wills to Christ, but he inclines the wills of sinners to come unto him. He draws by effectual persuasion and not by violent compulsion. 3. That all those who are drawn to Christ here shall be raised up gloriously by him hereafter. I will raise him up at the last day. Such as are brought to Christ by the Father, Christ shall never abandon them, till he has raised them up at the last day, and presented them blameless and complete before his Father, where they shall ever be with the Lord. Verses 45 through 47. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Burkett notes, In these words our blessed Savior confirms his former assertion concerning the Father's drawing from the prophecies of the Old Testament, which, speaking of the days of the Messiah, foretold that persons should be taught of God to embrace the Messiah. Whence Christ inferreth that everyone who is thus taught shall come unto him and believe in him. Learn hence, one, that the teachings of God are absolutely necessary to every man that cometh unto Christ in the way of faith. Two, that such shall not miscarry in the way of faith who are under the special teachings and instructions of God. They shall be all taught of God. And he teacheth to profit, and that not only authoritatively, but efficaciously and effectually. Those whom God undertakes to teach receive from him both an ear to hear and a heart to understand. They shall be all taught of God, and they that are taught have heard and learned of the Father. Verses 48 through 51. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Any man eateth this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Burkett notes, In these verses, our blessed Savior resumes his former doctrine, namely, that he is the object of saving faith and the bread of life, which he compares with the manna, the bread of Israel. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, which manna was an illustrious type of Christ. Thus, both came down from heaven, both were freely given of God without any merit or desert of man, both in a miraculous manner, both at first unknown what they were and whence they came, both equally belonging to all, both sufficient for all, poor and rich, the manna, white in color, so clears our Lord's innocence, pleasant like honey, so sweeter his benefits, beaten and broken before eaten, Christ on his cross, bleeding and dying, given only in the wilderness, and ceasing as soon as they came into the land of promise, as sacraments shall vanish when we enjoy the substance in heaven. But though manna was thus excellent, yet the eaters of it were dead. But such as feed upon Christ, the bread of life, shall live eternally in bliss and glory. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Here we learn, 1. What a miserable creature man naturally is, in a pining and starved condition, under the want of soul food. 2. 
that Jesus Christ is the food of souls, which quickens them that are dead, and is unto the needy soul all that it can need, such spiritual food as will prove a remedy and preservative against death, both spiritual and eternal. I am the living bread. Verses 52 through 59. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except that you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Burkett notes, Observe here how the Jews understanding Christ after a carnal manner were offended at what he had said, for they thought it was inhuman to eat man's flesh and could not understand how the body of Christ could in such a sense be food to all the world. Hence note that carnal persons put a carnal sense upon Christ's spiritual words, and so occasion their own stumbling. But yet notwithstanding the Jews stumbling at our Savior's expression, he doth not alter his words, but presses more and more the necessity of feeding upon him by faith in order to eternal life. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Learn from thence, one, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true spiritual food of all believers. Two, that those and only those who by faith feed upon him shall obtain a life of grace and glory from him. If we do but by faith upon him, we can have no evidence for a life of grace, nor title to the life of glory. This place some papists produce to countenance the doctrine of transubstantiation and a bodily eating and drinking of Christ's flesh and blood in the sacrament. But it is evident that Christ treats not of the sacrament in this chapter, for the sacrament was not now instituted. Therefore it is not a sacramental, but a spiritual feeding upon Christ by faith that is here meant. For this eating gives life to the eater. All that eat are saved, and all that do not eat are damned. But this is not true of a sacramental eating. Besides, this eating which Christ speaks of, he makes absolutely necessary to salvation. But some are saved that never fed upon Christ in the sacrament, as John the Baptist and the thief on the cross. Lastly, if it be understood of a sacramental eating and drinking, woe be to the Church of Rome for denying the cup to the laity, because drinking of Christ's blood is here made as necessary as eating of his flesh in order to return to life. Except you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Observe farther the close and intimate union which is betwixt Christ himself and those that feed upon him. He that eateth me dwelleth in me, and I in him. As meat is turned into the eater's substance, so believers and Christ become one. And by feeding on him, that is, believing on him, there followeth a mutual inhabitation. Christ dwelleth in them, and they in him. This is true of a spiritual feeding upon Christ, but not of a sacramental eating. Nay, Christ carries it higher still and tells us that there is a real union between the Father and him, and as the Father lives who sent him, having an eternal fountain of life in himself, and the Son lives by the Father, 
having the same life communicated to him with his essence from the Father. In like manner, says Christ, he that eateth me, the same shall live by me. All which is certainly true of our spiritual feeding upon Christ by faith, but cannot be applied to the corporal feeding on him in the sacrament, as the papists would have it.